Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. It reads this. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I want to preach to you this morning on this text and under the title, Silencing the Voices Which Condemn Us. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this text. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your people. I ask God that as I preach this morning, that I would preach your truth, not merely my, my thoughts and my ideas. I pray that you would open our hearts, make our hearts soft and malleable, shaped by your word, so that we might look more like Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. You may be seated. Silencing the voices which condemn us. Silencing the voices which condemn us. Imagine you are at your house and a couple church folks show up at your front door, ring your bell, knock on your door. You open the door and they just kind of walk right in the house without much of an invitation. You're trying to be a good church member. You're trying to be hospitable and you're like, oh, I guess I should just let them in. And they come in and you're like, oh my goodness, looking at the living room. It's a mess. They walk straight into the kitchen. Please don't go in the kitchen. As they walk into the kitchen, you realize that the grease is still there from last night on the stove. The milk is out. That's, that's a bad sign, right? Of course, the, the sink is filled with dishes. And then one of them says, man, I've been wanting to see your house. And they walk straight into your bedroom. the most intimate of spaces, the most private of spaces. And as soon as they walk into your bedroom, you see what you see every day through a whole different set of eyes. Your bed is a mess. There are papers and unpaid bills on your dresser. Candy wrappers an empty McDonald's cup from last week on the floor, laundry all over the place. Look, there is a reason that sometimes we don't let people in. Right? We know that our house is a mess. And we know that if we see our house through somebody else's eyes, that we don't like what we see. And in our own lives, 
we feel these same sort of uh, voices. Voices which come in uninvited and condemn us. Not audible voices, but what I would call this morning an internal witness of, uh, of condemnation against us. Somebody walking into your bedroom, I think in some ways, is the same sort of horror which caused Adam and Eve to put on fig leaves. What if they see me for who I really am? What if this is put on display? What if this that I'm used to is actually noticed? This morning, I want to show you from this text, and I think from the broader scope of what Paul's trying to do in Romans, that Jesus not only comes in and figuratively cleans house, all right, but Jesus also provides a space for us to hide in, to get away from the condemning voices in our lives, to such a degree that by the time Paul gets to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means this, that when then later on, after you get to Romans 8, 1, to that realization in your own life, and somebody sees something in you that is ugly, that is undesirable, that even you don't like, that it's no longer a voice of condemnation. But rather it's, yeah, Jesus died for that as well. Praise God for His grace. Amen? But first, let me work through this text because it's really kind of an interesting couple verses, which is why we're only taking these few this morning. Verse 12 really answers this question. It's an old theological question, which is, can a person who has never heard the name of Jesus, you know that old idea of like there's a deserted island somewhere, some natives that live on this island, and the gospel's never... Can they somehow be saved without ever hearing the gospel. And there was, there was one famous pastor in Philadelphia who years ago confessed that he used to answer that question basically by saying, yeah, it's, it's possible, we don't know. But then he said that Romans 2.12 changed his mind on that answer. Romans chapter 2, verse 12, and I think he's right, by the way, it teaches us in 14 English words, or actually it's seven words in the Greek, it teaches us that everybody everywhere, even those without God's revelation, are still accountable to God. So look at verse 12. He says, for all have sinned, all who have sinned, without the law, everybody say law. law. Y'all know what that means, right? That is the Mosaic Law or the Scriptures, the Ten Commandments. It's God's particular revelation that came through the Jews, which we call now, you know, the Old Testament. 
And I think we could also broaden this to understand this to be the whole of the Scriptures. He says, verse 12, everybody um, lost it. Uh, everybody who's sinned without the law or God's revelation will perish without God's revelation. That word perish is the word that's used throughout the Bible uh, to reference the verdict on that final day of judgment, which we understand to be death after death or, uh, or hell or, or it's sometimes called Hades. Now, this is connected with verse 11 in the text, the very previous verse, which says that God will uh, not judge with any any kind of partiality. So, if you want to understand what's going on here, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2 basically is saying that those who are religious, the religious types, need God's grace. He's he's building a case for, uh, for that there. But then he's also now going on to verses 12 through 16 saying the unreligious types also need God's grace. So skip to verse 14. He says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, but by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Now this is an extremely relevant for us today because we, we, we like to plead ignorance. You know, if you're going 65 down a road with a, that's a 45 uh, mile an hour speed limit and you get pulled over, you say, oh, officer, I didn't know it was 45. You know, and maybe if you could go back and find that that sign had been knocked over and that the road was not properly marked and there was no sign on the road that said the speed limit is 45, maybe that would hold, court, uh, hold up in court and the judge would let you go based on your ignorance of the speed limit, you know? And I think in some ways we approach God in the same way, hoping that our ignorance might give him some partiality. Well, he's, he's going on with this whole, like, no partiality thing. He doesn't show partiality to ethnicity, uh, Jew or Gentile. He doesn't show partiality uh, if you are a religious individual. And he also doesn't show partiality uh, if, we, if we claim ignorance. I didn't know. So verse 12 and 13, let's go back, to the, go, go back a, a, a couple. This goes on to restate this, this truth in a couple different ways. Verse 12, he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So here, no partiality. Are you tracking with me? It's this comparison. If you've got the law and you've sinned, you perish under it. If you don't have the law and you've sinned, no partiality, you still perish in the same way. Verse 13, he, he reiterates, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the, what's the next word there? The doers of the law will be justified. Now remember, this is building a case for the Apostle Paul for justification by faith alone. So there's a sense in which verse 13 doesn't really apply to anybody. Because nobody is a doer of the law. Nobody is justified by doing. We walked through this last week a little bit if you were here, but just as a quick recap, you know, in theory, if you could follow God's law to a T with perfection, you would be right. 
but he's building a case, getting to chapter 3, verse 10, in which he states the, 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 the verdict of his case that there are none who are good. No, not even one. Uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 20, he says, therefore, no one is justified by works of the law. He's pushing us all to Jesus showing us that we are made right before God, not by our accomplishments, not by what we can do on the rat race of life and achieve and prove and show off, but we're made right with God because of Jesus, because of what He did, and because we are a people who put our faith into Jesus. So I guess we could go back and say, well, there actually is one person that verse 13 directly applies to. Who is the one that is the doer of the law? You see, Jesus Christ was God of God, very God of very God, light of light, right? There with God in creation. He has no beginning, eternally God. At the fullness of time, he was born to a virgin Mary, which means he, 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 he actually became a human being, which is why this can apply to Jesus. Fully God and fully man. Now, um, um, imagine there's a barbell and you, you're starting to place the 45-pound uh, uh, plates on the back of Jesus Christ, the weight of the law. All of the, the, the burden of fulfilling the law of God. Perfect obedience and the plates keep coming on, right? The picture we have of Jesus is that he stands firm under the bar that would have crushed me. And it would have crushed you. But not only did he fulfill the law in the sense of righteous obedience, but in the penalty of the law. You see, on the, on the cross, he not only fulfilled, on the cross, he bore the wrath of God. He bore the penalty of, 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 of our sin. He bore the judgment of God for us. It crushed him. It put him in the ground. Maybe that will finally defeat him. And he rises again. Conquering, defeating, he is the victor. He is the captain. And he calls, to, he calls to sinners everywhere. And when I say sinner, I mean the way the old hymn puts it. The vilest of sinners who truly believe. To them, the life gates are opened. Through faith. Through turning and trusting in Christ, calling on his name. And you're like, well, can you prove it? Can I, how can I feel it? I'm like, you have faith. It's, we walk by faith. We walk by faith, church. And all who trust in Jesus are represented by the victor. And we're, we are then doers of the law through Christ. Like, in a sense, we're all saved through works, aren't we? But not our works. We're saved through the work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are saved. We are saved by grace. The main point of the text, then, is that not only religious people need grace, but also unreligious people are without excuse 
and need grace. But this still begs the question, though, which he then answers in verse 14 and 15. So just keep tracking with me here, all right? We're doing some work this morning. It begs the question, how can somebody who doesn't know God's law be guilty of breaking God's law? Meaning, if you're driving down that road at 65 miles an hour and you never knew it was 45, you'd get off in court. So, so how is it possible that God will hold somebody accountable for the sign that they supposedly never saw? Well, that's what he gets to in verses 14 and 15. And these are what I'm going to call, listen, the voices of condemnation. But then I'm going to quickly turn. I'm kind of giving you the roadmap for my sermon here. I'm going to quickly turn it and say these voices of condemnation in our life are silenced by Jesus. All right? But these are the voices of condemnation. The first one is the moral law. Everybody say moral law. This is super important. The moral law. Paul, for the first time in Romans, in verse 14 and 15, he goes into depth explaining the moral law law of God. What is it? Well, let's look at it. He says, for when Gentiles, now here he's, he's referring to pagans. He's referring to those who have never received the law, those who have never heard the, the name Moses or Abraham. All right. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. What's he saying here? Well, C.S. Lewis says that the moral law is like the tune that everybody, every human being anywhere knows instinctively. It's the tune that is to be played. And he says our instincts... Like, for instance, when you decide not to murder somebody that you want to murder, all right? That's your instinct. I should not do this. How did you know that? He said, those are the notes of the tune. And what Paul's saying is, is that everybody everywhere instinctively created in the image of God knows the tune. And he goes on to prove it. He says, how do I, so how are they guilty of this? Well, he says it's because at times they actually do it. At times they actually play the right notes. So think of like kids. When a, when a child says, you stole my chair, that's the moral law. That was my orange crayon and you took it. Like I hear my, my, my two boys all the time, stop, give it back. Stop! I can't tell you how many times I hear, stop! What is it? That's the moral law at work. Meaning, like, why is it that mo- every culture everywhere believes that murder is wrong? You don't need the Ten Commandments to, believe, to know that murder is wrong. Or that adultery, you know, stealing somebody's spouse is wrong. Every culture everywhere. Why is that? They're playing the notes. They know the tune. We can't claim ignorance. You know that the speed limit was 45. The work 
of the law is wired into their hearts. Yet, we don't have the ability to follow it. So even with with Jeremiah, where God says, I'm going to write the law in your hearts, what what he's saying there is, is not so that you would know the law, but so that you would have the ability to obey the law. The first voice that speaks against the Gentiles is the moral law. We know it. Now, all, all, all three, I'm giving you three voices. These three voices build on each other, all right? They're all connected. So the second one is this. It's their conscience. It's their conscience. Knowing what's required, my conscience then speaks against me and accuses me. Verse 15 continues, their conscience, conscience also bears witness. He's saying they know. They know. Their instincts tell them what notes to play and the fact that, yes, they play the right notes sometimes, but the fact that they often are playing the wrong notes, you know that the tune is dun, 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 dun. And then you go dun, 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 dun. There's something that keeps you awake at night and that's called your conscience because you know you played the wrong notes. And by the way, I think this is why people work really hard to try to mute their conscience, to try to cover up their conscience through their accomplishments and through their degrees and through their their jobs and through what they can do with their hands, right? I think this is why some people might turn to substances, alcohol or, or drugs, I think this is, uh, this, this, is, this is why so often we are unable to, to just sit down and have an honest conversation with each other because our conscience is always accusing us. The voices which condemn us. There's a third one. He goes on to say, their memory, or what, the way he says it is their conflicting thoughts. Look at verse 15. He says, and, so their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, let's work through this a little bit. Conflicting thoughts. What does he mean here? He might mean that your conscience tells you to play this note, but you're always playing this note, and so you're in conflict. I know what I should do, but I don't do it. And I think there's some truth there. But there's also the possibility, uh, some scholars have mentioned this, that this could refer to the memory of your conscience at work. Meaning, as you think back on your own life, you meaning the Gentiles who have never heard the law, all right? As you, as you consider your life, and you think about the good that you've done and the bad that you've done, your mistakes and your successes, things you're proud of, the things you regret, that these are conflicting thoughts. They're, 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 they're conflicting voices. Some of these voices shout out and say, you're okay. But others are the ones that keep you up at night. that say, you're not okay. Are you with me? He says, your conflicting thoughts accuse you. The, the, the emphasis here 
it, the way this is structured in the language is, is on accusation, not on excusing. So let me just read it again as it's, as it's written. He says, and their conflicting thoughts ex, uh, accuse, or it says, even excuse them. That word even has this idea of perhaps with it. So I think it could be read something like this. As they think about their past, the memory of what their conscience was saying to them generally is one of accusation. Perhaps, sometimes, even excusing them. The, the point Paul's making, though, the, the, the emphasis, the, the summary of what Paul is saying here is, is, is simply this. I don't have to prove that the unreligious are guilty. They know they are. Why? It's because there are these voices of condemnation which speak to them. And this leads to verse 16 and, and, and the end of our, our passage this morning. Verse 16, it leads to that final day of judgment. He says, look at verse 16, on that day. When according to my gospel, everybody say gospel. gospel. Now notice Paul says my gospel. He's not referring to another gospel. Paul, Paul condemns preaching another gospel. He's saying the gospel that you know that I preach all right, this is how near and dear the gospel is to him. This is my good news, all right? On that day, according to my gospel, then he says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He's, he's saying that when Jesus comes back to judge, he will judge the secrets of men. You know, it's going into the house. Seeing the things that we don't want to see, the things that we cover up, the things that we are used to looking at that we don't want other people to see. He's saying that Jesus knows our thoughts. Now, I can't read thoughts, all right? I was driving my girls to school the other day, and I was uh, uh, wanting to read something on my phone, a text message that somebody sent me. But you know, you shouldn't read text messages and drive at the same time. So I handed the phone to my daughter, Eden, and I said, could you read this for me? And so she grabs my phone, She's reading it. I'm looking at her. I was like, I can't hear your thoughts, babe. Oh, you wanted me to read it out loud? <laughs> we can hide our thoughts from each other. Often these voices which condemn us are unknown to all of our friends, to those around us. But those, listen, in their sin, what he's saying is, is that these secrets will one day be revealed. When Jesus comes back, this is getting to the inner core of man's guilt. Saying God knows everything. He doesn't show partiality based on our ignorance, and he also doesn't show partiality based on our secrets. The secrets of the wicked will be exposed and judged. Now, what does Paul call this? He says, according to my what? Nope, gospel. Somebody say gospel. Gospel. Come on, church. According to my gospel. Paul calls this the gospel. He calls this the gospel. That Jesus is going to come back one day and judge the secrets of the wicked. 
He calls this the gospel. Do you know that Paul never apologizes for any aspect of the gospel? He never says as a preface, oh, and by the way, I don't really like this aspect of God. I don't really like this aspect of what God is going to do. Paul believes that all of God's truth is good truth. What we call the hard truths of God are not bad truths. They actually lead to life and flourishing and abundance, and so therefore they are good. And Paul says that the coming of Jesus to judge the secrets of the wicked is actually part of the good news. And, and church, church, you know this is good. You know this is good. Think about it. Think about it. The secrets of man which destroy lives. A man who can present so well in public, who's involved in so many good things, who's involved in so many social causes, but he has all of these secrets. He has all of this, 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 this trail of abuse. And what he has left behind him in his wake are destroyed lives. What Paul is saying is that God will hold him accountable. And church, this is good news for the oppressed. If this is not true, there is no hope for the oppressed, for the abused, for the downtrodden, for the broken, for the weary, for those who have been crushed by the wickedness of man. Uh, a friend of mine wrote a hymn which I think so powerfully captures this. He says, God will judge this world so full of evil and bring each work of darkness into light. And on that day, His enemies will tremble when the King returns in glorious might. Finally, oppression will be over. Secret acts of cruelty made known. Listen to this. Nowhere left to hide for the abuser. Every deed laid bare before the throne. We long for that day when Jesus comes again. When sorrow and pain will all come to an end. When justice is done and evil is cast away. Oh, may we all be found in Christ that day. But then here's the turn. All right, here's the turn in the gospel. But there is hope for all who trust in Jesus. For all who know forgiveness in His name, He faced the wrath deserved by ruined sinners to save us from our anger, fear, and shame. Oh, I long for that day when Jesus comes again, when sorrow and pain will all come to an end, when justice is done and evil is cast away. Oh, may we all be found in Christ that day. You see, church, what's radical about the gospel is not guilt, but forgiveness. What's radical about the gospel message is not that we are left with the condemning voices, but with the voice of Christ. What's radical is we're not left with condemnation, but we are left with forgiveness. Are you with me? 
And now, listen, I, I assume, all right, on a Sunday morning that this is a mixed crowd. There are some people in this room who need to turn to Christ now Amen. for the forgiveness of your sins. And you are invited to become a Christian today, to place your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ. And if you do, I want to address the Christians in the room. If you do, everything I'm about to say will apply to you as well. All right? Listen, we are the people of God. We are the people of God. We have been forgiven of our sins. Yet, all right, we are still in this raggedy old flesh. And because of that, these internal witnesses still have a tendency to speak condemnation over us where there is no condemnation left. Are you with me? So how do we silence without the use of alcohol and drugs and perfectionism and accomplishments? How do we silence the voice of condemnation? Five things. Number one, know that your greatest voice of condemnation is internal, not merely external. You see, this is what happens. Often somebody comes along and says something that's a trigger for you, but the, the condemnation isn't necessarily the external voice that you heard, but it's how it agrees with the internal voice of condemnation, which you're all often living with. Meaning, somebody says something to you, and you know, it should kind of like rank, on a, a, a rank as a, a three on the frustration scale. But for whatever reason, it ranks as a 10 on the frustration scale. And you go home and kick your cat. Why? It's because the external voices which we hear are caught by the internal voices of condemnation. Our conscience, our memory, all of these things. And they are twisted and used against us as fuel to confirm the fact that you are indeed condemned. Are you with me? Secondly, second thing we got to do, and this may be a given. Those of you that are in this church every week, you're going to be like, oh, of course. Let's try not to have that response. Turn to the gospel. Turn to the gospel. What I mean by that is what I just, just described about what Jesus did for us, God, who he is, our state of need for forgiveness, Jesus' work on the cross for forgiveness, and the hope that we have through faith that we are forgiven. Yeah. Turn to the blood of Christ. Listen, in the gospel message, what we know is this, is Jesus not only heard the voices of condemnation against you, which he did, all the voices which you don't want other people to hear, Jesus heard and knew every bit of it. And secondly, he agreed with it. But thirdly, he took it. He took the condemnation that I deserve on the cross. And he paid it all. So, number three, know that Christ now silences these voices which are against you. Think of it this way. The moral law comes along. 
as the first witness in your court case before the holy judge, Jesus Christ. You're standing there and the moral law stands up and says they knew the tune, they know the tune, they haven't played the tune, but before they can even make their case, Jesus shuts them up. And he says, I know they knew the tune. I know they didn't play the tune, but I'm a virtuoso. And what happened is I sat down at their regeneration and rebuilt the whole piano, put new pedals on it, new strings in it, new keys on it. And then I sat down and played the tune of their life that, it, that should have been played. And I did it for them. They're accepted because of what I've played. And not only that, moral law, I am their piano teacher. You see, you're sitting down taking piano lessons from Jesus. And look, I know how it is. You wish that you could play like a virtuoso right now, and you're still working on scales. That's okay. That's okay. That's what he wants you to be working on. The basics. Maybe in 20 years, you'll be playing as nicely as some of your spiritual heroes in life. But never, in all of eternity, will you be there because you played so well. Jesus goes on, fourthly, he goes on to silence our conscience. Our conscience is the second witness that stands up and rises against us in that courtroom and says, well, wait a second, I've got something to say. Number four, know your condemning conscience is lying to you about your status with God. When your conscience comes and accuses you, tempting you to go back to that old self, to try to impress God with your abilities, I want you to hear God's word in 1 John 3.20, which says, if our conscience condemns us, we know that God is greater than, everybody say greater than, God is greater than our conscience. What, what, what is greater than I mean? Well, he's talking about who's, who's the greater judge. An old Tim Keller illustration that I'm going to use. Uh, uh, Tim Keller said, if, he says, if I tell my, my wife that she is ugly and everybody else tells her she's beautiful, how is she going to feel? Ugly. But if I tell her she's beautiful and everybody else tells her she's ugly, how is she going to feel? Beautiful. Why? Because I sit on the highest authority in her life. This is what, what, what we're being told about our conscience in 1 John 3.20 is it doesn't matter what your conscience says. God is greater than your conscience. He sits on the highest throne. He has the highest courtroom. He is the supreme court of heaven. And so it doesn't matter what these lesser courts say. They are lying to you about your status with God. And fifth and lastly, know that your memories of past sin are washed away in the blood of Christ. The last witness stands against us to condemn, and that is our conflicting thoughts. All of the memories which seek to come back and haunt us and to judge us. And we remember all of our shortcomings. Well, again, let's turn to the Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 speaks to it. And it says, How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, 
to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God in the courtroom of God's justice. We're standing there before Jesus the judge as his blood-bought family member. And as these witnesses rise to speak against us, Jesus says, silence! Silence! You have no voice in this room. You see, Christ has conquered first our present when you fail, even now, when you waver, when you struggle, when you doubt, when you sin, even presently, and your conscience speaks against you, God is greater than your conscience. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. And when you think about your past, it's washed. There's nothing that God knows about your life that Jesus didn't die for. And if our past is taken care of, and if our present is safe, then church, our future is safe in God. Amen? Let me, let me, let me close with a parable D.A. DA Carson once told. There are two Jews. Imagine there are two Jews named Samuel and John. Are those Jewish names? I just came up with those names. Yes, they are Jewish. I had to think about it. <laughs> Samuel and John. They live in Goshen. Goshen is a part of Egypt where the Jews lived when they were enslaved. It's the night of the final plague when the angel of death comes across all of Egypt, by the way, Goshen is part of Egypt, he's coming over the whole land, and the angel of death is going to kill the firstborn son in every home. Now Samuel and John are having a conversation as the sun begins to set. And Samuel says, i got to be honest. I'm scared. I am horrified. I don't know if we're going to make it through this night. I don't know if my little Charlie's going to make it through this night. And he says to John, he says, John, you've, you've got three, three sons, and praise God for all three of them, but all I have is little Charlie. That's all I've got. I mean, if he doesn't make it through the night, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what I'll do. John then responds to Samuel and says, I trust in God. I trust. I have an unwavering trust in God. That night, their families go to bed in their respective homes. Before the sun sets, they've each placed the blood that God required on the doorpost. The next morning when the sun rises, which son, John and Samuel, 
Which son has been killed by the angel of death? The answer is neither. They both made it through the night. Why? It's because the assurance of their safety was not based on the quality of their faith. It was not based on their unwavering uh, trust in God. Their safety was not based on their confidence. Their safety was not based on their own personal sense of, I'm okay. But their safety, their assurance was totally based on the blood of the Lamb. Are you thankful for the blood of the Lamb? No matter what our voices tell us, no matter what thoughts come and accuse us, no matter what our conscience speaks against us, no matter what our past has said about us, no matter how hard it is at times to maintain our ability to trust God, what makes us safe in God is the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed by the blood? By the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Church, then take heart. His blood speaks a better word than all the empty phrases I've heard upon the earth. It speaks righteousness for me. And it stands at my defense. Jesus, it is your blood. Take heart in the blood, church. Be thankful for the blood. Find refuge in Christ. Find your safety in Christ. And when you are safe, in Christ, you are truly safe. You are truly secure. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for the blood of Christ. We thank You for the blood of the Lamb. Father, we thank You that Jesus died to make a remedy for us and that we are safe in Him. I pray that the voices, these internal voices of accusation which often come against us, would be silenced by the work of Christ. That we would see that He does indeed sit on the highest throne. And the word we hear from Him, the word we one day will hear from Him, is well done, my good and faithful servant. May we all be found in Christ on that day. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.